Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I am your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking with Josephine Lee. Dr. Lee is professor of English and Asian American Studies at the University of Minnesota, just down the road from me in the Twin Cities, and she is also the author of the new book, Oriental, Black, and White, The Formation of Racial Habits in American Theater, which came out with the University of North Carolina Press just last year in 2022. Welcome to the New Books Network, Joe. Good to have you here. Thank you so much, Steve. It's such an honor to be here. Why don't we begin, as we always do on this podcast, by just hearing a little bit about who you are. I'm curious about what your background is, and especially I'm interested in hearing how you became interested in all the topics that you study in theater, in literature, in history, and just kind of in storytelling in general. Um, So as someone who was born and raised in New Jersey in the shadow of Manhattan, right on the Hudson River line, I've always been in an environment um, where the performing arts were really important. Um, but, But some of that, I think my interest in theater is a quirk of my own upbringing. Um, As a kid, I used to check out uh, collections of new plays from the library and just read them. Um, So I've been interested in drama and literature and theater from early on, though I was never much of an actor. I actually did my undergraduate degree uh, in physics and switched to the humanities um, and then went on and got my graduate degree in English with an emphasis on dramatic literature of a number of periods. Can I ask you as just one quick follow up? Did were you did you ever perform in a play yourself? Uh, I have, I have, I've, uh, I was in a number of acting classes. I did a lot of playwriting actually when I was a college student. Um, I worked with uh, a playwright, um, unfortunately now deceased, A. R. Gurney Jr., who was teaching at uh, my school at MIT at the time, and uh, we performed in each other's plays. I also did some acting lessons over at H. Uh, B studios in New York when I was a graduate student. Um, none of that was something that I really felt like I needed to continue. Again, I'm, I'm happy to be um, behind the scenes mostly. Um, I just dramaturged a new production that's opening, opened last weekend in the Twin Cities or opened last night in the Twin Cities called The Chinese Lady. It's a play by Lloyd Sa, and I highly recommend it. Uh, I know by the time this podcast comes out that might be irrelevant, but Steve, if you want to be there, it's a great play. 
we should talk about that after we are done recording because I'd love to hear more yeah. uh, since I'm local. Um, I'm curious also, what brought you to the topic, the specific topic of this book? Why write a book about American theater and race in the 19th and especially early 20th century? Yeah, you know, I've been writing about race in, a, in American theater for a really long time. Um, so my first book was uh, Performing Asian America, and that came out in 1997. And in that book, I looked specifically at plays by Asian Americans um, written from the 1960s on. Um, And so these were contemporary works that looked at Asian American playwrights um, with a lot of emphasis on the staging of racial and ethnic identity and different kinds of um, racial interactions. That book focused on contemporary drama and performance, but I've always been interested in theater history too. And so my graduate work um, way back in the 80s was not actually about Asian American theater, but but was a a kind of heavy lift of uh, 19th century British drama, including works by Oscar Wilde and George Bernard Shaw. So in uh, 2010, I kind of returned to some of that training and uh, worked on a book I published um, that was a production history of Gilbert and Sullivan's light opera, The Mikado. And The Mikado uh, was a play, uh, or, or an opera rather, that came out in the late 19th century that um, was has been sort of continuously produced again and again, um, not just in the UK, but but in the United States and in fact all over the world. And I looked at a variety of productions of that 19th century opera, particularly with a focus on how it represented Japan uh, and used um, in most productions, um, yellow face, which is uh, the practice of white actors or singers playing um, versions of Japanese characters. And so I looked at this comic opera you know, sort of from the time it came out in the 1880s until today. And among the most interesting productions that I found um, were a set of productions that were done by African-American casts. And these included um, a production called the, the Swing Mikado, and it was a version of the Mikado where they kind of jazzed up uh, Arthur Sullivan's music. Um, This was copied by uh, an African-American version called the Hot Mikado, and both of them were competing versions of the Mikado that were produced on Broadway in 1939. So when I was doing work on this section of the Mikado book, it got me thinking about how representations and uh, both of Japanese and other Asian characters might be understood differently when we see them as being played by black rather than white performers. And my research on the Mikado started unearthing more and more examples of this kind of cross-racial performance, which is not often what we think about when we think about cross-racial casting. We all know a lot about, for instance, the history of blackface minstrelsy in which white performers blacked up. We also know more and more, I think, about yellowface performance in terms of white actors playing oriental roles. But we don't really think about how actors who are not white also played um, racialized roles um, 
And this led me to the project that eventually became Oriental Black and White. So let's get into some of the big ideas in this book. And there's a term that you use quite a bit that some of our listeners uh, might be familiar with, but others others might not be. Can you explain what you mean when you talk about Orientalism, um, what that term means, where it comes from, and why it matters so much for the, the story that you're telling here? So I'll start um, with a, a really th- well-known book that uses this term, and this would would be Edward Said's uh, 1978 um, book called Orientalism. And Said uses uh, the term Orientalism to describe how um, Europe, the UK, and the US, um, how scholars and officials and, and popular culture viewed societies and people in Asia, North Africa, and the Middle East. So a large part of the world that was headed under the term the Orient. And what Said um, discusses and lays out is that there's a kind of binary opposition that's posited and understood and assumed between the so-called Orient and, and the Occident, right, which is the West. And that opposition also has a power dynamic um, that comes with it, in which the Orient is is seen as a, a kind of space of barbarism, irrationality, and chaos, as opposed to the Occident, the West, as the place of civilization and progress. So when I was thinking about um, my book, Performing Asian America, I thought about Said a lot. And, and I'm really interested generally on, on racial representation. Um, and I'm interested in theater. So I was particularly interested in how Said emphasis, emphasizes a kind of um, um, Orientalism as a kind of theatrical mindset. And so one of my favorite quotes from Said um, is when he says, the Orient is the stage on which the whole East is confined. On this stage will appear the figures whose role it is to represent the larger whole from which they emanate. So this quotation to me kind of captures how particular character types in theater um, are interesting because uh, they represent a group identity, right? Whether that identity is about national culture or in many cases about race in the United States. So racial stereotypes, I think, help us to understand um, uh, how a whole group of people who are very, very diverse and, and have a lot of variation in terms of at who they actually are um, can be flattened into one type of character. And that character can be kind of reproduced again and again and again in the theater. And one of the first examples that you give in, in the book is kind of actually more in contemporary times. You start by talking about two versions, two Disney versions of the story of Aladdin, the early 90s, probably pretty well-known uh, animated version and the maybe slightly less well-known, uh, more recent live-action version. And I'm curious how these two tellings of this story, how they play into themes of Orientalism and what the deeper history of the Aladdin story is in American theater as it relates to to your book. 
Oh, that's that's a really great question. Uh, you know, the Aladdin chapter is, for me, one of the interesting, uh, most interesting parts of the book to reflect upon now, now that it's written and published. Um, as you probably know, as a historian, the curse of any kind of um, historical research is success. It is finding way too much in the archive to write about. So when I initially um, pitched, you know, this book to different university presses, I think the version that I had was, you know, like well over 200,000 words and 14 or 15 chapters long and and several of the presses that I approached said, whoa, we can't we can't publish anything this long. So I had to think about how to cut it to a more reasonable length. And there were a lot of people who advised that I cut sections like the section on Aladdin. Right. And one of the reasons is that Aladdin is a, a story that does not confine itself to the U.S. Right. So so the chapter on Aladdin kind of starts with um, uh, British productions of this. And in fact, Aladdin is a story um, was taken from the, the collection of Arabian Nights tales that were translated into English and other European languages in the 18th century. It's a story that is sort of much older than when, you know, when I was pitching the book, I said, well, it's kind of about the 19th century. But the Aladdin story actually was translated in the 18th century. Um, so I feel, felt like, though, when I was um, thinking about, well, what in the book had to go, I couldn't give up Aladdin. Because one of the things about Aladdin is that it shows I think some important things about how race and different meanings around race operate in and through um, the theater, right? So, so race is something that's present in American life as a kind of social issue, but it's also uh, got an interesting um, relationship. Um, the everyday performance of race has an interesting relationship to the theater. And so I feel like the theater, what the theater does with racial representations is it takes certain stories and certain values around race, and then um, it repeats them again and again and again. Um, and it repeats them in the case of Aladdin as a form of um, popular entertainment. So the Aladdin story is interesting because it became, it soon became not just a story that was told, but also as a play. Um, and, and that had a really successful life as a, as a theatrical production and now as a, a movie, like the Disney movie. Um, and one of the things I found was really interesting about Aladdin is that it, it was not devoid of racial meanings, even from its onset. So in the story, which is originally set in China, and, and I think later versions, particularly American ones, have moved the story to the Middle East, um, it has a kind of racialized setting and then, you know, shows um, the many characters, um, you know, the kingdom uh, as being a Chinese one. Uh, and then um, it also identifies certain characters as specifically being black. And in the original Aladdins, it was the evil magician who's the uh, antagonist of the piece. 
um, the magician, and then a number of interesting servant characters or slave figures are also identified as black. And what I found most interesting, I think, in my reading of Aladdin was how this story kept giving us um, similar versions of um, different racialized figures that were not just black and white, right? So you have a story that's kind of oriental or orientalized, and it also includes as part of its meaning or part of its working, a set of characters who are identified as black. And I think that still exists even in the Disney films, right? I, I think there's some explicit um, references to blackness that I think are really, really interesting and, and kind of reveal themselves again in Disney. I don't want to spoil people's readings. I want them to go and read the book uh, to find out how. One of the uh, really important characters, especially early on in the book, is someone named Ira Aldridge, who, who you talk a, a fair amount about. And um, I thought his story was really interesting. I, you know, I'm not a scholar of, of theater, but I, I, I had not heard of him and thought he was a, a pretty fascinating person. Can you tell us who Aldridge was and in particular what kind of roles he played and how those helped to kind of shape ideas about identity and what you call racial habits in 19th century American theater? Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I love talking about Aldrich and, and Aladdin because, again, when I was thinking about the book or trying to pitch the book, these were chapters that were on kind of the earlier part of the 19th century or even earlier than that. And they were the parts of the book that, that some readers thought, well, maybe this should be like, maybe this shouldn't be in the book. But I thought it was really important to acknowledge Aldrich as um, a leading black actor, right, it, at a time in which there really were no other figures of that stature. So Aldrich, um, you first hear of Ira Aldrich as someone who worked in um, the first, perhaps the first black theater company in the United States, and that was the African Grove Theater Company in New York, um, which lived for only a short time, um, and Aldrich was present there when um, the African Grove was playing in the early 1820s. Um, he, like other um, black artists did throughout the 19th and into the 20th century, he lacked any opportunity in the U.S. Um, the African Grove Theater was shut down. He moved then to the United Kingdom and Europe, and he spent the rest of his career there. And he was quite well known um, and had a, a kind of uh, remarkable reputation. And there are a number of scholars, um, there's a wonderful four volume biography of Aldrich, if anyone's interested, uh, by Berndt Linfors. Um, a number of scholars have written about his performances of Shakespeare. So he was best known for playing Shakespeare and Othello perhaps understandably was his most um, kind of is most um, characteristic role. So, so I think a lot of people have written about his performances of Othello. My chapter um, departs from that kind of thing. And what I look at are some of the roles that Aldrich wasn't kind of 
talked about for, um, particularly in the present day. Um, but these are roles that he also received critical praise for by reviewers. And unfortunately, these are roles that we would call um, quite stereotypical. They're roles that were based on some of the comic blackface roles of the time. And um, he played a number of um, kind of foolish, uh, inept, and sometimes drunken servants. Um, and the two that I look at are uh, a servant character named Mungo in, in a kind of operatic op afterpiece called The Padlock. And Mungo was a very famous um, character type. And there's also a piece uh, I'm sorry, there's also a character who is a, a servant um, named Ginger Blue, and um, that is in um, uh, a play called The Mummy uh, that came uh, about in the kind of mid-19th century. And that was a role that was um, first brought to the American stage by um, a man who was who's sometimes considered the founder of blackface minstrelsy or one of the fathers of blackface minstrelsy, uh, Thomas Dartmouth Rice, right? And, and Rice pioneered this character of Ginger Blue. But it's interesting because Aldrich also played this character. Um, and I argue that his performance of Ginger Blue is quite different from Rice's or we must look at it differently from Rice's. There's another um, side to these characters, which is that they all have these oriental aspects uh, built into them, right? So, so we're looking at Aldrich playing blackface roles, but there are also roles that have a kind of oriental dimension. And we know that he played um, oriental characters, such as a character from Aladdin as well. So I'm trying to show that Aldrich did something that a number of black actors did um, in their time period by taking on oriental roles. He was trying to show more of his talent and skill as an actor. So even though these roles are stereotypical, the fact that he could move between them so well, um, I think shows the kind of actor that he was. Still thinking a bit about about Aldridge, but other actors for, from the period as well. Um, you know, one of the the big points you make in the book, one of one of the major arguments and topics and themes in the book, is the connection between Orientalism and minstrelsy in American theater in the nineteenth and into the twentieth centuries. Can you talk a bit about these connections, why they exist, and what we can learn from looking, for instance, at these particular connections between blackface performances and yellowface performances in theater? Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, I I was really um, intrigued by the fact that minstrelsy, which was um, a kind of prevalent form in American theater, I, I would say through much of the 19th century into the 20th century, and dominated sort of views of blackness and race and how that should be represented. I was really struck by how much, how many times minstrelsy also included allusions to other races, right, including what we might call sort of Orientalist representation. And I think my book gave me an opportunity to really delve into the ways in which when people were playing 
uh, minstrel characters, um, in other words, black characters, black stereotypes. They also included um, other kinds of uh, representations of other uh, races, like there were um, minstrel sketches that included um, uh, Chinese characters, Chinese immigrant characters. And I think that there is this kind of constant interplay and awareness between the representation of blackness and the representation of Orientals and particularly Chinese immigrants at the time. And so there's a complex moment in history when you realize there are a lot of different people on the kind of American scene and, and there's a kind of social anxiety that revolves around race and it is multifaceted, it is multiracial. And all of these systems of identity and things like like racialization, for instance, they don't exist in a vacuum either. They also are connected to other other sort of uh, identity forming mechanisms. And there's a really great part in the book where you talk about the connections between racialized performances and performances of gender and sexuality in American theater as well in the same time period. Can you talk a bit about these connections and, and how they, they crop up in, in theater performances from this time? Yeah, I mean, that's so well put. It, it is really a book that's influenced by, I think, what we call intersectionality, right? That there is not really a way of talking about race without talking about gender and sexuality or other aspects of social identity, right? That, that there are all kinds of um, examples of how looking at certain figures in these plays that come up again and again, um, involves looking not just as how they were racialized, how they were understood to be racial characters, but how they were understood either in terms of gender and or sexuality. So one example might be the figure of the Chinese laundryman. And there is a, a good deal in this book that's about a regular kind of comic sketch that involved the Chinese immigrant laundry man, right? Or laundry worker or laundry business. And one of the things that looking at these pieces involves is not just how these immigrants were understood as a form of racialized labor or maybe labor competition. In other words, the Chinese coming to America were seen as competitors for white um, working class jobs, um, but also how they related to domestic work, right? So when the Chinese, when Chinese immigrants were um, uh, discouraged or not allowed into kind of masculine um, labor, they often took on domestic roles. And so within the idea of the Chinese laundry, right, is that Chinese immigrants, male immigrants, are doing women's work. And that feeds into seeing them as kind of emasculated and or sexually dangerous um, figures. And another example in the book might also be, you know, the ways in which um, gender plays into who's allowed to actually make a living on the stage and how. And so I'm thinking about um, some of the roles uh, that were available to African-American women who wanted to perform. And so there's a number of interesting examples that I, I look at in, in one of the chapters that has to do with um, the opportunities for African-American women to perform um, what might be called oriental dances. 
And during the Chicago World Exposition in 1893 on the Midway, there was this huge craze for uh, what were called Oriental dances, dances from that were imagined to be from Egypt or Turkey or other parts of the so-called Orient. And what's interesting, I think, in, in the research is that African-American women um, started to perform these roles and sort of took them on as their own and, and made them an opportunity to, um, to um, be more visible in show business. And this was not just in vaudeville, but also on the kind of more uh, classical or renowned um, stages of musicals and even opera. So I'm a historian by training, and as a historian, I am a little bit obsessed with with context. Not to say that history yeah. has a monopoly on context, but it's something that we definitely we think about a lot in in over here at Historyland. And so through a lot of this book, I was thinking about well, what is what is going on in the United States and in the world that is making all of these topics so popular in American theater? I guess what I'm asking is why Orientalism in American theater at this particular moment? Why Orientalism and ideas about about East Asia and people from East Asia generally, why do these become such, for lack of a better term, such popular topics or tropes in American theater during the period that you're studying here? I, you know, I love that question because it sort of brings in, um, you know, maybe maybe a lot of us appreciate history, right? But but it sort of looks a little different, I think, from the point of view of doing theater history, right? That history might be seen as a, a, a kind of succession of moments. You know, one time period produces certain set of conditions followed by another time period. Theater keeps repeating those moments, right? So, so a play that was written in the 19th century might be reproduced today, um, maybe modernized a little bit, but, but the basic storyline is still the same. So, so theater is full of these sort of resurrections of history. And it also, I, I think in some ways repurposes things, conditions of history. So I think there's some wonderful um, historians who have written about Orientalism. You know, among them is uh, John Koi Chen, uh, who wrote a wonderful book a number of years ago, a number of years ago called New York Before Chinatown. And he talks about different varieties of Orientalism in different moments. Uh, sort of starting with the 18th century into the 19th century, right? So a colonial America um, to a, a sort of moment in which Chinese migration became much more kind of known and anti-Chinese feeling grew, which is in the late, later part of the 19th century. So in this sort of earlier period, um, Chen identifies um, different kinds of and attitudes towards the Orient. And so it sort of starts with the association of the Orient with wealth and trade and luxury. And, and this maybe goes back uh, all the way to Marco Polo and the spice trade, right? The Orient is the space where you can have kind of adventure and profit. It's also a space that's associated with um, things that are really spectacular and decorative and exotic in terms of commodities. Um, and I think all of that um, kind of makes its way into theater, right? So, so theater is full of 
and there are examples uh, throughout my book, you know, in which theater theater is a space where people go to be kind of impressed and entertained, right? So what we might say, the kind of exotic and even uh, decorative dimensions of Orientalism are really, really present, whether they're in spectacular settings or costumes or mysterious characters that promise adventure, or even um, the versions of the Aladdin story, you know, which are basically versions of, of kind of exotic tourism, you know, for Western adventurers to, to sort of go and witness. And so you have that, you know, and I think that is very much ingrained, but still appears today. I think you also have some other versions of Orientalism that come about later, and those have to do with the um, versions of what we might call the, the yellow peril, right, which is a, a kind of stereotype that grew around, um, um, it, like, the idea of imperial Japan, right? So, so when Japan became uh, open to the West and then became more modern and had aspirations to be the sort of um, uh, imperial power in in uh, in Asia, then you got the yellow peril um, imagery, right? Stereotypes of Japanese as this kind of marauding uh, culture. Um, you also had the yellow peril in terms of immigration and labor. And so in the U.S. in particular, there's a lot of familiarity with seeing Asia as an economic competitor and seeing Asians as a, a kind of labor force that would put white people in particular, um, other people as well, but particularly white people out of jobs. So you have this kind of yellow peril Orientalism that also makes its way into certain stories in the in the book, and finally, I think you know a, another version of Orientalism might be the ways in which imperialism kind of starts to creep in, and so there's a chapter on um, plays about the Philippines, um, particularly during the Spanish American and the Philippines, uh, the war in the Philippines, um, and it's about kind of associations of uh, manifest destiny and uh, benevolent assimilation of what were called uh, little brown brothers, right, the, the Filipinos, and that as a kind of form of Orientalist discourse. So um, this is, of course, the uh, uh, New Books Network American West channel, American West podcast. Um, we haven't really talked about Place all that much as far as where uh, this book takes place um, so far in, in our conversation. And a lot of the book takes place in the East. I mean, New York City is, of course, the major hub of theater in the United States. But I'm curious to what extent you think this is also a story about the American West. So how does the West come into play here? How do you see this as a Western story as well as an Eastern story? Yes, I, I think that's a great question because we often think about New York as being the center of theater work, but those of us who live in the Midwest know that that actually isn't isn't the full story, right? That that um, and I think it's true in this book as well, right? That that a lot of the productions that I I write about, including productions that were given by all black companies, which traveled across the United States. Um, 
those are are everywhere and including the American West. And I, I do feel like the, that kind of way in which theater travels um, is is pretty um, much a, a kind of given. And what it's doing is, of course, creating a kind of national identity uh, in which um, uh, which encompasses certain values that we associate with the American West. I think the chapter that, that really um, focuses on this most is uh, chapter four, and that's about a couple of melodramas, um, and one of them is a, a play that's pretty much forgotten now, but was extremely, extremely popular, uh, a melodrama called Across the Continent, which is came out in 1870. Um, and another melodrama, which is uh, written by Bret Hart and Mark Twain, and both of those are writers that we know uh, are maybe a little more familiar with. Um, and that came out in 1877, and it was called Ah Sin. Um, and both of those melodramas are about the American West or have scenes in the American West. And what's interesting is that is in, in um, conversation with a, a particular stock character. These are the first plays in which we see uh, the Chinese immigrant as a comic type. Um, and what's interesting with these characters is they emerge in conjunction with a kind of vision of the West, um, uh, as well as with mining in California, the gold rush, right, which is the reason why a number of Chinese immigrants came. Um, the second thing that's interesting, I think, about these plays is that these Chinese characters come in, but they're also paired with black characters, with black servant characters. And there's these plays, the way they're depicted never gets that far away from what I would call the characteristic tropes of blackface minstrelsy. It's kind of like these characters were new characters because they were Chinese, but they were also really based on older characters that were black originally. So as we begin to to wrap up here, um, I always like to ask my guests to take kind of a different perspective on their book and put yourself in the shoes of someone who has um, read this book and has then put the book back on the shelf, left it behind for six months or a year or two years, and then thinks back to this book. What would you hope that reader comes away remembering? What do you hope their big takeaway from your book might be? So I, I I am enjoying this because my husband's actually reading this book. He's not an academic, and it's taking him a while to get through it. I mean, each chapter in some ways has its own kind of focal point. Um, I think the larger takeaway, once you've gotten through the whole thing, um, well, maybe it, it's sort of two things. One is to um, appreciate um, Black theater history, right? Theater that was made by and about black characters, uh, made by black performers for and, and concerned black characters as being really foundational to American theater history, right? That, that I think we often think about American theater history as a kind of white theater history, and that's just not true. There was a lot of performance um, by African-Americans that we don't really think about, right? And one of the things that I think is interesting about that is that those performances included performances that were not 
not of black people or white people. They included many other characters, including a lot of Oriental characters. And even though it's troubling to think of black actors as performing Oriental stereotypes, I think it might prompt us to sort of think about those interactions and those judgments a little differently. So I think that takeaway, the larger takeaway, is that the theater, I think, um, is complicated in the same way that race in the U.S. is complicated, right? Race in the U.S. encompassed multiple groups of people who interacted or maybe played different kinds of roles, uh, social roles, on a regular basis. And um, race isn't just one set of binary oppositions, um, and it's much more complex. And so I, I feel as though this book um, makes me very, very uh, kind of humble and willing to look at very specific things and think about them more carefully without necessarily reaching one conclusion. I think those are both excellent takeaways. And to to your to your first point, you know, I I went into this book, and of course, I had read a, a synopsis before before uh, emailing you about coming on the show. But I kind of had an assumption that it was you know mostly going to be about Orientalism in American theater. And I came away understanding so much more about uh, uh, black actors and black theater in the nineteenth and twentieth century than I ever thought I would. We talked a bit about uh, about Aldridge earlier, but there's so much more on that topic in this book than I ever expected. That was kind of a really nice surprise for for me oh thank you so much um and then for my last question before i i let you go um i always like to get a preview from my guests about what they are working on next and this book's been out for about a year or so so i'm curious what uh project you've been working on in the interim what do we have coming up next from you so I had mentioned that the original part of this book, uh, the original version of this book was way too long. Uh, so what I did is I took some parts out and I developed them more. And I have a new book, uh, a very small book, people might be relieved to know, on American musical theater and race. And that just came out uh, last month. Um, it's called Race in American Musical Theater, and that actually follows up on some of the material I wasn't able to use, but it also has material on much more contemporary musicals. Um, so in this uh, Oriental Black and White, sort of, I made myself stop at 1925 because it felt like looking at the earlier kind of roots idea was very compelling to me, but there were a lot of examples of interesting kind of ideas about race and musicals that I felt like I wanted to follow up on. So race in American musical theater is, is what I did next. Um, that sounds fantastic. And actually, before uh, before I, I let you go, before we wrap up here, I had one last question I wanted to ask you. I should I should point out to everyone listening that this book is available um, completely free and open online, and I'll be sure to put a link to the book um, in uh, the show notes for this episode. But I'm curious, Joe, why you made the conscious decision to make this book open like that? Sort of what your what your thinking was there, what your plan was. Well, I think, you know, as an academic, as a professor, I'm really interested in the ways um, that our research can get out into the wider world. And because I work on theater, 
Um, I made the conscious decision many years ago. Um, I think after my first book, Performing Asian America, came out, um, there is a, a man I know who, who reviewed it on a theater website, and he said, oh, this is not bedtime reading. And so I really took that to heart, and I thought the, the kinds of creative work and the artists that I'm writing on, what are they going to say when they read my book? And and why, while I, I don't know that I've entirely gotten away from from the kind of detail and and maybe um, nerd nerdishness that that, that theater theater nerds uh, might appreciate, I, I think I, I wanted I, hopefully I want the book to be um, able to be read by by anyone, right? It's not got sort of jargon in it. Um, I hope that people can just take a chapter and, and look at it if you're interested and it doesn't stand as something that, um, I don't want things to get in the way of reading it. And I, I do that also because my Mikado book, um, when I took that road, actually had a little bit of an impact on how um, opera was looking um, at things that works like the Mikado. So maybe readers will know that there has been some activism and protest around racial representation and particularly the use of yellow face. Um, and I'm happy to say that, that there have been a number of theater artists and dance artists and um, musicians who've read the Mikado book and have said, well, you know, now we get it. Now we see this. And so I made um, this book open access so that other people could do that and, and take a look at it just for fun. And um, and the Mikado book is going to be open access hopefully in the next year as well. So just kind of giving back in any way that I can. That's fantastic. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that that's the kind of thing that we hope all of our books and research can do is to make that kind of real tangible change in the world. So congratulations on, oh, on having you. that kind of impact. Yeah. Dr. Josephine Lee is a professor of English and Asian American studies at the University of Minnesota. And she's the author of the new book, Oriental, Black and White, The Formation of Racial Habits in American Theater, which came out with the University of North Carolina Press just last year in 2022. Thank you so much for joining me today, Joe. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you.